Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Spring Church. We're glad that you're here. We want to invite you to stand to your feet. We're excited about all that God is doing in our church, in our lives. And we want to tell them right now that we are thankful for the very breath in our lungs that he's brought us through so many trials and situations. And we're going to give him praise and glory that he deserves today. So join us in lifting your voices, clapping your hands as we sing. When I think of your goodness and your
worshiping with you this morning. Would you stand to your feet and let's ask God to move in this place today.
Well, we know that God is here moving in this place. And when we're in his presence, when we're standing in his love, we have nothing to fear. So would you join me in declaring this next song in truth today? to make today. Thank you guys so much for worshiping with us. You may be seated. We have an incredible testimony that we're excited to share with you today. One of the one of my favorite people on the planet. Her name's Haley. And you're about to hear more from her and her family at this time. Check out this video. Well, Haley was born in June of 1990. When she was five months old, we learned that she had a hernia and that she needed to have surgery to repair the hernia. It was intended to be an outpatient procedure. The surgeon came out and told us that during the surgery, um, Haley's heart had stopped beating. They had been able to get her heart started again, but what we didn't realize was that while he was in the waiting room talking to us, her heart failed a second time in the recovery room. They had been able to get a chest x-ray and they could see that Haley's heart was greatly enlarged. It was about three-fourths the size of her chest. He warned us at that point that he wasn't sure that Haley was gonna make it through the next 24 hours. And I remember at one point praying that if it was God's plan to take Haley from us, 
that he would please just give me one more opportunity to hold her so that I could tell her that I loved her. Haley did make it through the next 24 hours and in another couple days, we were able to finally hold Haley again. And then a few days after that, we were able to finally take Haley home. So when Haley was 18 months old, we had an evaluation done of her. And at the conclusion of the testing, um, they told us that Haley had cerebral palsy. They said she would never be able to walk. Um, she would never have normal use of her arms and hands and she would face a variety of developmental delays through her life. This all stemmed from brain damage caused by lack of oxygen when her heart failed during the hernia surgery. When Haley was about three years old, um, one evening I was giving Haley a bath and out of nowhere she looked at me and said that Jesus had taken her to see God in the clouds and that he had said, Haley, you need to go home so your mommy can hold you somewhere. We had an appointment scheduled with a new pediatric cardiologist, and we felt comfortable enough with him that we shared that story with him. We both remember how he just looked at us and said, I believe her. He said, I've looked at everything that she went through and based on what she experienced, she shouldn't be here today. She shouldn't be alive. When I think about Haley and what she's gone through early on in her life and 25 surgeries since then, I think it would be easy for a person to feel like God had forgotten them. But she doesn't blame anyone or anything for what she's not able to do or not able to participate in. He's freed her from having that bitterness. Haley has such a strong faith. The Spirit of God in Haley is so evident. Whether you look at her when she's smiling, whether you listen to her when she's singing, she impacts people in a lot of different ways. And most of the time, I don't think she has any idea that she's made an impact on someone. They just see her smiling and her attitude, and it encourages them. Haley and I were so excited the first time we heard the worship team sing Who You Say I Am. That's one of our favorite songs. When it comes on the radio and we're in the car, we are singing at the top of our lungs. Well, I really like that song and the overall message of what Jesus does for us, how he frees us through his death on the cross and also um, from our challenges on this earth. I also like how it reminds me that I am a child of God and how, uh, how there's a place for me in heaven. To me, Haley, in a sense, embodies the purpose and hope that all of us have in Christ. God has richly blessed her and given her hope for this world and beyond.
The lyrics behind me on the wall say that I am chosen and not forsaken. Haley said it better than I think anyone can. A hope not just for the challenges of this life that come and face us now, but a hope for an eternal future where we are made whole with our Savior. And if you've been freed by the blood of Jesus, will you sing this out? I'm in South Auditorium. For those of you in North Auditorium, it was great to be there today. And it is just so exciting for me to have the privilege to talk about what I'm going to talk about today. Our series is DNA. It's seven claims a Christ follower can make. And today I'm going to talk about one of the most important issues of life. And that is, what is your purpose? What is my purpose? Several years ago, we started something at New Spring called Starting Point. And it's a living room environment, kind of a friendly casual, easy setting where people are free to explore faith and bring all their questions. I think we've had right around 3,000 people go through starting point. I would love to do that sometime. Unfortunately, all the starting points are held during the service time and I'm busy. So uh, I keep thinking, wow, I would love to just sit in on that and, and really enjoy it. But one of the first things that happens in a starting point setting is, um, I think just kind of as an icebreaker in one of the first sessions, the question is, if you could ask God any question that you wanted to ask him and he would answer your question, what would that question be? And Mary Alice, my wife, started Starting Point here at New Spring, and she would come home and tell me how surprised she was at what the predominant question was. You know, she thought it would be some form of why do bad things happen to good people or, you know, why is there suffering in the world? That's a huge question. Or it might be some question that's hard to figure out in the Bible, like where did Cain get his wife or that kind of thing. But she said she was overwhelmed that almost in every session the number one question that people said they would ask God if they could ask him any question was, what is my purpose? Why am I on the planet? Whenever I think about that question, I always get a picture in my mind of a scale or a balance. Because on one side of the scale is your life. And we all know that our life is valuable. We have a sense that our life is valuable. I'm not talking about a feeling of entitlement. It's just that we have, I really believe, in our hearts, a sense that we have value and worth as a human being. On the other side of that scale has to be the purpose that somehow balances out with our value as a human being. And it's a challenge for us to find what it, what it is that goes into the other side of the scale, as in, why am I here? Now, we do know that there are some pseudo-pursuits that our culture is real big on and sticks into that, that value part of the scale. Things like money and power and fame and attention and sex. But all you have to do is walk through the grocery store checkout and look at the magazines that are up there telling us about the celebrities who once again are continually in crisis. All that, that's all you have to do to recognize the reality that those kinds of things don't make people happy and they certainly don't balance out our worth as a human being. So then... What is it? What goes in that side of the scale? Let me go one place further, and I'm, I'm not really sure I know how to say this. I really do believe that one of the reasons why so many people definitely in our part of the world, why, why so many people struggle with feelings of self-worth is that they can't find something on the other side of that scale. 
And when it doesn't balance out, they come to the conclusion, maybe I don't have value as a human being, and that's so wrong. Well, today, I want to talk about what every Christ follower can say, because there is something that balances out your worth as a human being, and every Christ follower can claim this, and none of us has to get to the end of our life and say, well, I guess my life wasn't worth living. Today, the sixth of the seventh claims that a Christ follower can make is, I have a purpose that matters. So if you came in today and you were wondering if your life really mattered, if you're a Christ follower, you can walk out of here and say, today, I have a purpose that matters. In this series, we've been looking at four successive chapters in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, and we're going to be in chapter 5 today. The reason why these chapters are so important is God is allowing the Apostle Paul to tell us this is what the Christian life is all about. And we've looked at five of these claims today. We look at the six. We're going to go straight to it. I'm not going to give you any more introduction. I want to show you what the Bible says is every Christ follower's purpose for living. Look, please, at chapter 5 and the 20th verse. This simple statement. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. That is the purpose, the quintessential, ultimate purpose that every Christ follower has. We are ambassadors for Christ. Well, right out of that, uh, right out of that box, it causes us to ask the question, well then, where does our citizenship lie? I mean, all of us here, we have some basic citizenships here in the United States. I am a Kansan by choice. Um, I am an American by birth. I am a Texan by the grace of God. I mean, all of us... <laughs> All of us have citizenships. But I want to show you something. The Bible tells us that even though we may be citizens of the earth, we may be citizens, in our case, of the United States of America, others of you watching around the world, citizens of your nation, our ultimate citizenship is not in this world. Look in the book of Philippians, and this will be up on the IMAX screens. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where the Bible says our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait, await the Savior to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. Paul wrote this to the people of Philippi. Although Philippi was not in Italy, it was a Roman citizen. And the inhabitants of Philippi had all the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship, although many of them, most of them, had never been to Rome. Now, think about how the Word of God is speaking to us. We haven't been to heaven yet, and yet Scripture tells us every Christ follower, one of the ways the Bible says this, the Bible says we've been made to sit in heavenly places. In effect, we already are citizens of heaven. Maybe you grew up in church, or maybe you just have heard this. Have you ever heard that our names are written in heaven when we accept Christ? Well, do you know what book they're written in? They're written in the citizenship book of heaven. In Bible days, there was a book, there was a scroll, there was a, uh, there was a set of writings that contained the names of every citizen of that town. And so scripture tells us that when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our names are written in the census book of heaven. So if you're a Christ follower, uh, even though you're not in heaven yet, you are a citizen of heaven. So think about that for just a moment. Think about the juxtaposition of those two statements. We are citizens of heaven and ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Well, that's a very interesting thought, and it leads us to the question, what is it that ambassadors do? I was just in Israel in the month of June, and I was not there as an ordinary tourist. I was there by the invitation of the foreign minister of Israel. The foreign minister of Israel is tantamount to our secretary of state. So I went along with the consul general uh, for the southwest, and Mary Alice and I had the privilege of going to Israel and because we were there as guests of the foreign minister, actually met with him uh, himself, but we also met a number of ambassadors. That's what foreign ministry is. It's a collection of ambassadors. Our State Department here in the United States manages the ambassadors. So when I was in Israel, uh, it, it's not surprising that primarily the officials that I dealt with were ambassadors. I had three meals with ambassadors while I was in Israel. Now, it was real clear to me what their purpose was. It was twofold. Number one, they were to represent Israel, and they were to connect with me. Um, and I was very clear when I sat there in those meals with those ambassadors 
They were trying to give an agenda. They were trying to carry out an agenda and give me information about the state of Israel. Now, although I'm not an important person, they saw me as a person of influence. And consequently, they wanted to connect with me in order that I might share what I learned while I was in Israel. Now, here's the thing. You and I are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Our job is to represent Christ and to connect with people who don't know him yet. Now, one of the things that I discover in our times, and I want us to be really honed in on this, and I want us to really get this very well. We have to do both jobs. We have to represent God and connect with people who don't know him. What I've watched through the years as a leader of a church and growing up in church is people tend to do one or the other. There are people who represent God, but frankly, they're a pain in the neck. Have you ever met anybody like that? I mean, it was, it's like, yes, they represent God, but their personalities are so acerbic, they're a turnoff to everybody else. Well, that person's not a good ambassador. They've done part of the job. They know that God is important. They know that his word is true, but they're so unpleasant that they never connect. Today, it's far more likely for Christians, at least in our Western world, to connect with the world, but not to represent God. I'm surprised at some of the things that so-called Christians are saying today. They're saying that what God says is wrong and what the culture says is right. That person's no ambassador. They're just a connector. They're just really, in fact, what the Bible would say, they're just part of the world. But we live in an age where we don't see a whole lot of representation of God and connection with the world. That's what ambassadors do. And when I was in Israel, it was very clear to me that those ambassadors were representing Israel, but they wanted to connect with me. So then, how do we live as ambassadors? And I hate lists over three because I'm ADD. Uh, so I just want to give you three things that I think are really key for us today as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing. An ambassador for Jesus Christ is an example. Now, the moment I say that, I know that that could bring guilt, and that's the last thing that I hope for here. Nobody's perfect, and no one is going to be a perfect example of a child of God. But at the same time, I think we need to think about that a lot. Every once in a while, somebody will come to me here at New Spring and say, well, Mark, I must need to change jobs because nobody where I work is a Christ follower. Think about that for just a moment. That might be exactly where you need to be because you're a representative for Jesus Christ and you're to connect. And somebody will say, well, Mark, I never really get the opportunity to talk about Jesus because first of all, we may have corporate guidelines that prevent me from doing that. Or it could be that someone wouldn't listen to you. But remember this, you can always be an example of what a Christ follower is. After all, your life will speak louder than your words. And you can, you can love people. You can forgive people. You can be concerned about people's needs. You can do your job with excellence. I mean, think about what would a Christ follower do in my situation? What would an ambassador for Jesus Christ do in my family? So that's the first thing that all of us need to think about as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We're to be examples. Now, the second thing, and I got this when I was in Israel listening to all those ambassadors, it's very important for us to give the true agenda of Jesus Christ. You know, when I was in Israel, in fact, I think the sole reason why I was invited to Israel is that Israel's message gets garbled, especially through Western media. Here in the United States, Israel gets very much misrepresented. And so while I was there, they wanted to show me the true agenda. By the way, we need to think a lot about that. Have you ever talked to people who maybe are not Christ followers and they start telling you what they think Christ followers believe and you're like, wow, I don't believe that. I don't do that. But you understand what has happened. Satan has caused the true message of Jesus Christ to get all garbled up in religion and consequently it's important for us sometimes to say, no, this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Well, when I was in Israel, you know, I spent a couple of days, spent a couple of days in Jerusalem and met officials and we had sort of uh, nice dinners and things. But then there was a day when they wanted to show me what most American tourists don't see. They took Mary Alice and me and drove us south all the way down to the Gaza border. And there was a checkpoint 
where trucks went back and forth between Gaza, Egypt, and Israel. There were, I think, like 800 trucks going back and forth every day. They, while we were there, you could, you could smell the diesel. You could, see, you could hear those engines, long lines of trucks going both ways. And at the border crossing, they had to check every truck. It was, a, it was a, a scary place to be between you and me because everywhere I looked, there was four feet concrete, you know. And I remember the man who was in charge of that entire operation said to me, well, as he pointed to a door, he said, there's the bunker. He said, if the siren goes off, it means rockets are being shot at us. He said, if the siren goes off, you have 15 seconds to get in the bunker. I kept my eye on that door all the time I was there because he was showing me places on the, on the asphalt where mortars had landed. In fact, since I was there, that particular site has been the recipient of several rocket attacks. And uh, I, I never will forget, I, I think I shared this with you once before. Uh, I asked this man in charge, I said, what's a win for you? Because these trucks go back and forth every day. And he actually began to cry. And he said, for all my people to get home safe and alive tonight. But what really got me was as we walked around that compound and that crossing station, there were a number of young adults with automatic weaponry on them, men and women. But probably half of them were Jews and half of them were Arabs. And these were the people who were actually guarding the security. And see, in our culture today, over here in the West, oftentimes we have the image that the people in Israel are against Arabs. And they showed me not only that, but they took me to places where there were all kinds of farming done and there were Jews and Arabs farming side by side, oftentimes in co-ops, in cooperation. All I'm saying is they wanted me to understand the picture here is different as it, than it gets represented in the United States. And I think as followers of Jesus Christ, that's incumbent upon us because Satan is the author of confusion. And he will use all kinds of sources. Some of them are anti-Christian. Some of them are religious. But he will use all kinds of sources to distort the Christian message and make it sound like it's something that it's not. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and by the way, forgive me for breaking a sentence. This is what we're going to be talking about at the end of the message. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we need to know in our hearts and minds. We need to have it down without question who Jesus is, what the agenda of our king is in this world so that we can clarify and help people understand what is really true. Wouldn't it be terrible if somebody went to hell rejecting Christ because they had a misconception of what he was about? Well, I guess that leads me to the third thing that ambassadors do. Not only do we set an example and not only do we communicate the true agenda of Jesus, but it's important for us to give out a message. As I sat at the table with the ambassadors for Israel, it was clear to me their nation had a message, and they wanted me to hear that message. And they presented it in the most attractive way possible so that I would understand what the message of Israel was for me. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Our king has a message, and it's up to us to get that message across. The rest of our time today will be spent in analyzing that message. I don't even know if this is a sermon. It's really kind of a workshop. And I would, I would encourage you, if you're a Christ follower today, to take some notes, especially when we get to the end of this message. So if you take notes the old school way with paper and pen or, or pencil and mascara, as J-Strack says, um, or if you just do it electronically like most of us do it today, it's really important if you're a Christ follower to take this down. So what is God's message for the world? Well, here it is. We're all in, we're in chapter 5 today of 2 Corinthians. The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Look at this next line. No longer counting people's sins against them. Now the word reconciling there is going to appear several times in our text. Recon reconciliation, by definition, means the restoration of a broken relationship. We all know stories of couples who've separated and then they get back together. What is the word? What's the verb that we say? They reconcile. They got back together. So here is the thing. There is breakage between God and the human race. That broken relationship happened, first of all, with Adam's sin, and then we've all made contributions ourselves. So there is a break 
between God and humanity. So Jesus came into the world, and what we just saw is that God reconciled the world to himself through Jesus Christ, and I love this, no longer counting people's transgressions against them. It doesn't say we didn't have transgressions. It just said God doesn't hold them against us. That's beautiful to me. Now, the real challenge for me as a communicator right now is to make a point. And that is the point that God wants us to be reconciled to him, not that he needs to be reconciled to us. Because you see, the message of religion is that God somehow needs to be reconciled to us. And you know what? On paper, it would make sense. Because we've all sinned. We understand that we've made our contribution to that breakage of the relationship between us and God. So the idea is that somehow, and this is, again, this is what religion says, somehow we've got to convince God to be reconciled to us because we're sinners. It's almost as if God is standing over here with his back to us and his arms folded and we're back over there and we've got to figure out some way to get God to be reconciled to us. Now, like I say, on paper, that would make sense. And yet the message here is not that God is standing with his back to us and his arms folded. It is that God is here with outstretched arms and we as human beings have our arms crossed and our back toward God, and God wants us to be reconciled to him. That's extraordinary until you think about the story of the prodigal son, because that's exactly a picture of God. Do we feel that today? You know, there is the idea that God must hate sinners. It's the very opposite. God loves sinners. My favorite writer is Harry Ironside. He died about 70 years ago. But he wrote something on this scripture that is probably one of, the most, one of my most favorite paragraphs I have. He said, notice it is not that God has to be reconciled to us. God never had one hard thought toward me. Sinner, he's never had one hard thought toward you. You've had hard thoughts toward him, and you've taken it for granted that, of course, God felt the same toward you. But he loves you in spite of all your sin. I love this line. Jesus did not die in order to enable God to love sinners, but he died because God loves sinners. You know, if only we understood the love of God for us. Some people have the idea that God is hostile toward human beings and sinners. There are some who feel like God is sort of neutral. But if only we understood the love of God and how much he loves us. There's a verse in the Bible that I, I think about a lot, especially because it's kind of a new spring, new spring verse. In 2 Samuel 14, 14, this is the Old Testament the Bible says, all of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. Or one paraphrase says, God dreams up ways to bring the rebel home. In South Auditorium, North Auditorium. It would be so interesting today if we could go around the room and hear stories about how those of us who've accepted Christ, how we came to Christ. Those stories would be as diverse and different. We would tell all kinds of stories. And we would say, well, somebody just came and talked to me. No, somebody didn't just come and talk to you. God sent that person. God is up in heaven figuring out ways to get rebels to come home. In fact, you could be listening to me today, and you don't have a relationship with God, but I wouldn't be surprised if you started looking objectively at your circumstances, you might just realize that God has been working to bring you back to him. So we know that the message of the kingdom is reconciliation. I want to take us now to the next thing, and that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. The Bible says he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. In other words, God not only made a plan, he turned around and gave us the plan. Well, what is that message? Look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become or might be made the righteousness of God in him. One of the toughest challenges that you and I will ever have as Christ followers is to understand how we can be innocent in God's sight because we're not even innocent in our own sight. 
How can we be innocent in God's sight? The verse I read to you is one of the most important verses in your Bible. It says, God made Jesus, who never wants sin, not to carry sin, but to be sin for us. Think about that. God made him who never sinned to be sin. When Jesus died on the cross, God was punishing him for the sins of the world. I remember when the movie came out back in 2004 about the crucifixion of Christ. And the question was asked culturally, who was responsible for the death of Jesus? And there were some who would say, well, it was the Romans, or some who would say, well, it was the Jewish leaders. At the end of the day, let us be very clear on something. It was God himself who put Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 53 makes it very, very clear. That God loved us so much that he punished his son Jesus as though he actually were the sins of the world. In that movie, some of you remember Gibson's movie about the crucifixion of Christ. It's hard to watch. I only watched it one time. I couldn't watch it another time. The brutality of the crucifixion is presented, and it's actually worse than Gibson presented it. And we look at that and we think, wow, Jesus went through all that physical suffering for us. What's not said in that movie is that he went through a deeper suffering than even the physical suffering. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, God would make his soul an offering for sin. In effect, pressed into the compendium of those six hours on the cross, Jesus felt all the guilt, all the shame, all the grief of sin. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we who are sinners, have sinned, we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus wasn't sin. God made him to be sin. We are not righteous through Jesus Christ. God has made us to become righteous or to be righteous in his sight. And God has trusted us with that message of reconciliation. But Christ followers take a deep breath because look at where we're going now. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That means that God has handed the job of the world being reconciled to him to us. Man, if I'm God, my first idea is to give it to the angels. You know, after all, they've already proven their loyalty, and they're really powerful. And, and so I don't, I'm like, God, are you sure you want to trust? After you put Jesus on the cross, you want to trust me? But then the problem with angels is they don't know what it's like to be saved. They don't know what it's like to be rescued. The only people who know what it's like is you and me. For the rest of this message, I'm going to talk to you and me about are we living out our purpose? Are we really sharing Jesus Christ with the people around us? And one of the first things that could be pushed back here today is someone could say, well, Mark, I don't know that much about God. I don't know that much about Bible. I'm, the Bible, I'm afraid to open up a conversation because somebody might ask questions that I wouldn't be able to answer. Do you recognize the reality that the main thing God wants you to do is tell your story? They can argue with your theology. They can argue with your viewpoint about God, but nobody can argue with your story. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Hey, let me talk about something because New Spring tends to be a pretty young church. And one of the things that we're watching is there's a sort of um, prejudice among millennial Christians against evangelism, which is really peculiar because that's the reason why we're on the earth. But there's a growing prejudice here. I want to believe that there's a confusion between the understanding of two words. Let me say a couple of words to you and see how you feel about them. Here's the first word, convert. And now let me say another word, evangelize. If those words sound like synonyms to you, I need to let you know they're 180 degrees apart. Convert comes from the Latin, two words, convert. It means change someone's direction. We don't have the ability to do that. I mean, God never told us to go out and change somebody's direction. It's not possible. Now let's talk about the word evangelize. Evangelize comes from two Greek words. There is no V in Greek. The actual Greek word 
is EU, you, and then angelos. EU means good, and angelos means message. Do you, do you understand? We haven't been sent out to convert anybody. We can't do that. That never was God's plan in the first place. It's always a choice on the part of the individual. God never sent us to convert, but God did send us to go out and good message people. And that is what our job is. How are we doing at that? When I think about many Christians today, I think about the story of a kid who was applying for a job as an usher in a mall theater. And that the, toward the end of the interview, the interviewer asked him, uh, what would you do in case of a fire? And he said, oh, don't worry about me. I get out, okay? <laughs> I really think that's where most Christians are today. What would you do in case of hell? I get out okay. Do we understand? That's not what we're here on the planet for. We have been, the Bible, you heard it. The Bible says God has a message of reconciliation. He's trusted us with that message. Beyond that, he has given us the job of reconciliation. So with the time that we have left, I want to share with you two key ways that you and I can bring people to Jesus Christ. Here is the first one, and that is simply to invite people. When I think about what God is doing at New Spring every week, you know that the message is going to be here. You know that the worship leaders are going to sing songs that point people to God. You know that in kids' world, it's a phenomenal experience for kids of all ages. Consequently, so much is happening on this campus already to draw people to Jesus Christ. This church is a story of thousands of people who've accepted Jesus because someone just said, hey, you got to come to my church. And so every, every week until Jesus comes, you and I have an opportunity to invite someone. You say, well, Mark, I don't know if that person would be interested. I love what Philip said right after he responded to Jesus' message to come to him. He went and found his brother Nathaniel and said, we just found the Christ. And Nathaniel said, I don't think you did. But Philip just said, come see for yourself. We can all do that, can't we? Every Christ follower here. If you're a new springer, you can say... I just want to invite you to go to church with me. I want to invite you to experience what I experience every weekend. But with the time that I have left, and it's very, very brief right now, I want to do something. I want to take some time to do something that I feel like is vital. And that is, I want to ask you the question, if you were talking to someone, and in that conversation, a person said to you, um, could you tell me how I could go to heaven? Could you tell them? Could you open a Bible? And could you show them how they could go to heaven. When I was 10 years old, a guy in my dad's church who was a plumber, he was not a pastor, he, who t he taught me these, these verses. And in the succeeding years, I've led thousands of people to Christ with a set of verses that were taught to me by a plumber. And so I want to read those to you and give them to you and so you can take these down so that if someone ever came to you and said, do you know for sure how I can know I can go to heaven, you will have these verses. After all, remember, nothing outside of the word of God makes any difference. No one cares about any of our opinions. At the end of the day, when we die and the clock goes to all zeros, all that will matter is we're in God's hands at that moment. And the important thing is what does the word of God say? So I want to give you six or seven verses from Scripture, and then the message will be finished. Here is, the first, here is the first verse. This is where the story of salvation begins. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. The Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. That tells us that none of us is good enough to go to heaven. Not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, none of us. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now Romans chapter 3, verse 23 the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, those two verses form brackets. On the left-hand side, nobody's good enough to go to heaven. We're all in the same boat. On the right side, everyone has sinned and we've all come short of the glory of God. So if perfection is the standard, well, you might be 90% perfect. I might be 8% perfect. But at the end of the day, if perfection is the standard, the Bible tells us we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well... At that point, what does sin mean in my life? Bible says this time, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's a paycheck. You work on a job, you get a wage, paycheck. 
The wage for sin is death, and this is not death like dying and being put in a casket. This is eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation's not in good works. It's not in joining a church. It is a gift of God. Well, then here's the question. If I'm a sinner and God is willing to give me the gift of eternal life, how did that happen? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So suppose I recognize the fact that I am a sinner. I'm not good enough to go to heaven on my own, but God loves me. And even when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Suppose I wanted to accept Jesus Christ right now. One of the greatest verses in your Bible, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. If you think about the interesting part about that expression there, the idea that God had raised him from the dead, inherent in that is that Jesus died for our sins. So let's read it one more time. That if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart, that's your inner person. We talked about that last week. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So that's it. How does a person receive the free gift of God? It starts with the message that Jesus died for our sins, that he arose from the grave. If we believe, truly believe, and receive that gift, and we are willing to confess him with our mouth, we're not ashamed of Christ, the Bible says we can know that we are saved. Now, I always add this verse at the end, because someone could say, well, how can I know that I am truly saved? Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's such a simple statement. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe something today. I didn't really say this in the first two services. I believe if you're truly a Christ follower, if you truly know God, there is something in you that wants to tell somebody else. The idea that a person can really know God and not care anything about sharing the good news with someone else would be like a person who knows where a free buffet is who will not tell starving people where it is. I really believe, because somebody could hear this message today and say, I'm, you know, I really don't know if I'm into this all that much. I would never, I would never try to cause anyone to feel doubt unnecessarily. But if you claim to know God, you have zero interest in someone else knowing God. My opinion's completely unimportant but I don't think you know him yet. There is something in the heart of every Christ follower who knows, God saved me. I was a sinner, and he took me, and he loved me, and he forgave me. And now that I know that God's offer is on the table, I got to care about somebody, somebody who needs this. And I really believe, and here's the here's the beautiful thing about this, and I haven't said this in the other services. Every time you share Jesus with somebody else, it causes you to know him just a little bit better. It causes you to feel his presence in your life a little more because it is at that moment you were doing what you were destined to do. You can honestly say, I have a purpose that matters. Thank you. God bless you. You have a wonderful day.